right. Are we about ready to get going? Yes, sir. Okay, let's get going. My friends, we are here for our final evening of having Professor Kazuyuki Hayashi with us. We're digging into the Persian period and into the book of Ezra. This is a fantastic opportunity, especially since this is really the area of his expertise. Uh, he is writing his dissertation on this time period. And so this is fantastic. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for, first of all, kindly inviting me for this month to, you know, commune with you all and learn more about the word and about God. And trust me, as I've been preparing different things, I've been learning more about God. So this has been a very personal journey for me. Um, so today, um, I spent a lot of time on this week's um, lesson, and I always spend a lot of time, but this one especially, and I, it, this was the one that was most torn about. Um, I talked about pro perhaps in Ezra and Nehemiah, but I decided to let's focus on the book of Ezra, because it's kind of a natural beginning. Um, a lot of scholars actually think Ezra and Nehemiah was written by the same author, and that they're supposed to be one single book. And today, I'm going to hint some clues as to why scholars think that, or how Ezra sets up Nehemiah in some ways. Um, and also at the same time, this is a period in the, that mm, even Bible scholars don't know very well. It's the Persian period. It's in the, a period that many scholars have overlooked by, and for many years. And let's face it, Ezra and Nehemiah is not the most popular books in the Bible. It's, you won't find it too often in children's Bible, book, in Bible stories, and it's hard to be preached in churches. So, hopefully today as we read this God's Word from a different section that we might not be too familiar with, that God can speak to us in very new ways, um, in exciting ways. So let's dive in. First of all, um, the book of Ezra is, is comprised of ten chapters, and it actually splits into two really good halves. The first half is chapters one through six. And this is going to kind of focus on the time of return under Zerubbabel and reconstruction of the temple. And the book of Ezra is named um, Ezra because of a main character that appears in the book. But the odd thing is, if you start reading the book, you actually don't encounter Ezra until the second half. It's not until chapter 7 that you meet this main character, Ezra, whom the, whom the book is named after. And we find out that Ezra is a leader who leads the people of Israel back from Persia in a later generation. Um, and, and once he brings the people back from Persia uh, into the land of Israel, or Yehud at this time, he's going to go and reestablish God's covenant. Um, so this is often called like the book of the law of Moses. Um, a lot of people think it's somehow related to the Pentateuch as we know it, the first five books of the Bible. Um, and this framework is going to be very important to kind of understanding the theological message behind the book of Ezra. Today we're going to focus on the first six chapters. So sadly, we're not going to meet Ezra today. But hopefully in your personal readings and studies, you get to know this fantastic man of God in ways, um, in personal ways. The first six chapters actually breaks down into something like this. You're going to find out that the opening chapter begins with this Persian king named Cyrus. And he gives out an edict, this official proclamation to his kingdom, 
of how the Israelites are allowed to return to the Judeans at this time. The Judeans are allowed to return to their homeland. And interestingly, if you look at the ending of the book, we're going to find out that this edict of Cyrus is repeated again. So this section really sets up well. Um, it's clearly laid out by the biblical author that this is one unit. That's why when I, one of the hardest things for today for me was, well, I have to listen to what the Word of God is doing and where it breaks out the section. <laughs> Chapter 1 through 6 is one section, and if I, don't, if I cut it in the middle, I'm not doing justice to the biblical text. So we're going to try to cover this wide ground quickly, but still highlighting some important points. We also find out that there's a sequence. The, the Edict of Cyrus allows the people to return. The people return and, and reconstruct the temple, or work on the temple. Whenever the people of the Yehudites, or Judeans, try to reconstruct their temple, their holy place, their place of gathering and worship, there's always opposition that appears. And you can see this, like this. Chapter 3, there's the restoration of the altar and temple that begins, and there's this worship and celebration. And whenever the people of God worship, there are enemies that come and try to stop this in this um, worshipful act. We also see this in sequence in chapter 5. We're going to see once again, there's a rebuilding of the temple. But what happens when the people rebuild the temple? Opposition. Opposition. People will can try to come and stop. So we actually see a very good sequence here. We see that it, the book begins and ends with Cyrus, and after Cyrus, there's the people's reconstruction of the temple met by, um, met by an opposition, and you can find out that this area highlighted with light blue is all opposition. So, the text is really, by amount, focusing more on the troubles that the Judeans faced. Instead, Instead of the temple, yes, the book, the concept of temple is very important in this book. It's one of the main themes of the book that we're going to find out. But also, opposition was one of the main, is also a key theme, as we can clearly see right here. It stands in the center of this um, bracket, bracketing structure. So, let us read from the Word of God. Um, can someone read this um, verse right here? In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. Can someone read this text? This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Next. Any of those people among you may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. Next. And in any locality, lo locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to pro provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them um, with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the free will offerings. 
this. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had brought them, or had them brought by Mithradas, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Thank you. So, now that we've read these first three verses, just to, just to see, let's review what happened. The, cha- the book of Ezra begins with Yahweh, the God of Israel, which sounds obvious, but we have to remember that they live in a foreign land where foreign worship was very predominant. Um, and not only that, we can see that Yahweh is an active agent in history, and he is the one who moves world leaders in different ways. We're going to see that Yahweh Cyrus is to make this decree, and this decree has multiple own components to it. It has the rebuilding of the Jerusalem temple. It has um, the decree allows the Judeans to return to Jerusalem. Um, the specific groups are mentioned of people, the leaders of Judah and Benjamin, these two tribes, as well as priests and Levites, the people that are in charge of the temple. And people to provide materials for the temple is also one thing that was included to this. And what he also did was he returned the articles that belonged to the temple to be returned from this foreign land of Babylon, which Nebuchadnezzar took away, um, back to the land of Israel. So, does anyone know, have ever, anyone ever heard of something called the Decree of Cyrus? So, um, let's talk a little bit about the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire was a mega empire at this time, the largest empire that the world has ever seen at this moment. It was bigger than the Egyptian Empire. It was larger than the Neo-Assyrian Empires that we've talked about last week that sacked the Northern Kingdom of Israel. And we've talked about this Babylonian Empire that also made the people of Judah exiled out of Babylon. This Persian Empire is the one responsible for sacking and annihilating the Babylonian Empire. That was the most powerful empire at that moment of time. And you can see that there they reached um, give or take India, on, on this side, Egypt here, we also see that they go even to Greece at this moment. Humongous the empire. Persia. What? The green is Persian. Yes, the green is Persian. Everything you see here, that was the Assyrian Empire. The Babylonian Empire was right there. The Egyptian Empire. They covered it all. It was the largest world empire at this moment. And Cyrus is the first king of the Persian Empire at this moment. And does anyone know what the United Nations is? It's this World Council where world leaders can come together to um, talk about politics, to talk about how we can preserve the earth, um, talking about international standards that need to be made. Um, So at the UN headquarters, there is something called the Cyrus Decree, a replica that's displayed, and it's right here, what you see right there. The original is at the British Museum in London. But the Cyrus Decree has been, is placed at the United Nations because it's, they thought that this ancient document from the per, first king of in Persia represents the idea of human equality for caring for foreign nations and enemies and for unity. This ancient document still speaks very importantly to today. And let's, these are some, some of the words that actually says. It says, I am Cyrus, 
king of the world, as you can saw this wide place. Great king, mighty king, king of Babylon, king of Sumer and Akkad, king of the four quarters, meaning the four quarters of earth. The son of Cumbaisis, great king, king of Anshan, grandson of Cyrus, great king, king of Anshan, descendant of Tysus, great king, king of Anshan. You can see how he's repetitive there. But I took up my lordly abode in the royal palace and its rejoicing and happiness. This is mean when he conquered Babylon. He put his royal seat at Babylon. Marduk, which is the chief deity of Babylon at that time, the great lord established as his fate for me a magnanimous heart for one who loves Babylon, and I daily attended to his worship. So first of all, this is already sounds different, right? Last week we talked about the Assyrians. What were some things you remember about the Assyrians? Were they nice people? No. Brutal. No. They were brutal. Yeah. Do you remember there was a scene in their palace where, which has beheading? That's like putting that in your living room. You saw people on stakes. Um, they capture people and take them away. They destroy people. What is this? Cyrus is saying that the king of the Babylonians, his enemy, gave him a heart to care for the Babylonians. Um, it's very different, drastically different from what we've ever seen in history at this moment. I sought the welfare of the city of Babylon, remember, the capital city of his enemies, and all his sacred centers. Marduk the great lord rejoiced with my good deeds. The sacred centers on the other side of the Tigris, meaning foreign lands, whose sanctuaries had been abandoned for a long time, I returned the images of the gods who um, resided there to, to their place, and I let them dwell in eternal abodes. Um, I gathered all their inhabitants, returned to them their dwellings. Through Imgur Enlil, the great wall of Babylon, its defense, I sought to strengthen the quay wall of brick, which a former king had built, but had not completed its construction, with knots around the city, on the outside which no former king had made, who a levy of workmen or soldiers had led into Babylon, with bitumen and bricks I built anew and completed their job. So, there are a few things that I want to talk about with this inscription in particular. Cyrus, um, we skipped this part, but Cyrus begins by recounting how terrible the, the last king of the Babylonian Empire was, <coughs> and his name is Nabonidus, and he... And then, he contrasts himself with this evil king Nabonidus, the last king of Babylon that he just defeated, and he elevates himself. He talks as himself as the protector of Babylon, the capital city. He, calls, he talks as himself as the one who cares for the sanctuary for the Babylonians, that he took care of Marduk, their deity. And he not only restores the sanctuary of Babylon itself, but throughout his kingdom. How does this inscription reflect some of the events that we just read in the book of Ezra? Extremely well. Extremely well. Yeah. What are some specifics we can think about? I think he was, he was a caring person. Yeah, right. And I guess he wanted everybody to be happy. Indeed, so indeed. Yeah. So just like... In this inscription, Cyrus allows, restores the sanctuaries of Babylon and the foreign countries. In the biblical text, Cyrus, what does he do? He allows the reconstruction of the temple of the Israelites. So we're already seeing a historical archaeological parallel between the betrayals of Cyrus, the king of Persia, and how the Bible portrays it, right? 
um, and he talks of himself as um, this action was not simply because he was a nice guy, but he talks about how Marduk, the deity of Babylon, moved him to do it. So it almost seems like while some nations forced and coerced their religion upon people, it seems like during this, this, the first king of the Persian Empire almost had this idea of more lax allowing other deities and actually respecting other deities. And we're going to find out that in, throughout the Persian Empire's history, this kind of becomes a thing. We actually see that um, there's a very famous king that we're going to encounter later, Darius. He actually worships and sacrifices in Egypt to their deity. He also constructs Egyptian temples, not for the deity of the Persians, but for the Egyptians. So we're starting to see that during the Persian Empire, it seems like there is this notion that kings and good kings, what they do is help other nations that are within their realm um, in some ways, and especially in the realm of like this worship. And he allows um, the people to return. So, we, are, we can already see that the book of Ezra is not written from a vacuum. It's not one biblical author one day said, it would be nice if the Israelites came back this way, or Judeans came back this way from exile. It really seems like the memory of these beginning chapters of Ezra reflects a real person writing, sitting in the, in the time of the Persian Empire, and writing facts that was the norm during the Persian Empire of how these kings operated. It's a very cool thing to see um, when we read the Bible. Okay, so let's um, keep reading, um, keep going with, with what the Bible says. In the second month, <coughs> the second year, after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josadak, and the rest of the people, the priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from the captivity to Jerusalem, began to work. They appointed Levites 20 years old and over to supervise the building of the household. Um, can someone read this? When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, priests in their vestments, and with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to, and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build because, like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Ezra Haddon, king of Syria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, command us. Yeah. Can read this? Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of, king, of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Thank you. So, now that we've talked about this, we talked about how Cyrus allows people to return. The first thing that people does when they return is to build a temple, and immediately after they start rebuilding the temple, what comes? 
is an opposition. And we're going to find out that between chapter 1 and chapter 6, there's actually three waves of opposition. Not once, not twice, three. So, this is going to be the very first <coughs> opposition that the returnees of these, the Judeans encountered in the land. Um, specifically, a group called the Enemies of Judah and Benjamin desired to help the temple reconstruction. Then it talked about Zerubbabel, Joshua and the rest of the house of Israel, actually says, no, you cannot build the temple. You turn them down, and then people weren't hungry, the, uh, um, happy. The, the enemies decided to set out to discourage the rebuilding. It's how the narrative goes. So, one thing is, um, now we also talk, at the end, we talk about Cyrus to Darius. And here, this is kind of like the chronology we're working with. We're working with the first king, Cyrus, and then Cyrus the Great, um, give or take, started his reign at 539, and then Darius at 522. So we're talking about give or take, you know, uh, 18-year span or something. So, this enigmatic expression, enemies of Judah and Benjamin, who are the enemies of Judah and Benjamin is what I would like to ask. Why did, why, why say, so what, what can you think about this? Why didn't they say enemies of the Judeans? Why didn't they say enemy of the Israelites? This is a very odd and rare expression that you don't really find outside this passage. So this is actually an, an intentional cue and the, the author is giving to its readers of how to think about this issue. Let me further give you hints as to how to identify what these people are. The specific thing is that we have two hints. The first one, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him. So, whoever these enemies are, are saying, yo, we're the same people. Like, we're in the same group. You worship your God, I worship your God too, is what they're saying. Sounds like more of a friend or ally, doesn't it? Yes. Mm -hmm. So why enemy? Second of all, it says, Ezra king of Assyria brought us here. So it's, it's going into history at this moment. Well, when there's historical references, the best way to answer it is looking at history too. Last week, um, one thing I love about this week's lesson is that it really finishes up what we've been going through together very well because there are going to be multiple points of references that are going to point us back to the Book of Kings that we just did last week. We're going to be also seeing references to the Book of Joshua this week. So, let's look at this. If we remember last week, we, I started with 2 Kings chapter 17, the story of the fall of Samaria. And Samaria is called the northern kingdom of Israel at this moment. And... I talked about how the Syrian king deported the people out of this northern country, this, um, the northern um, country of Israel, to the land of Assyria. We found out that there's no such thing as the lost tribes, because they ain't lost. Um, but here's a passage at the end of chapter 17 that uh, we didn't read. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamad, and Sephardim and settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. So, not only did the Assyrians take people out, they decided to fill that hole back again with different people. They took over Samaria and lived in its towns. Then, the king of Assyria gave this order, 
have one of the priests, you took captive from the Samaria, go back to live there and teach the people what the God of the land requires. So one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel and taught them how to worship the Lord, meaning that Lord is Yahweh. So what we find out here, and this is actually Esarhaddon right here, and what he has here is he has a scepter, and he also has this um, line that goes back to people that he just conquered, and <clears throat> these people are pulled by a ring on their nose like that. He's not a nice man, but you can tell that what kind of stuff does he do? He takes people away, he goes and fights, and just, um, take away nations, and he puts this back in. So what we know from the biblical text at this moment, that this reference to the Esarhaddon actually is going back to this specific biblical passage. And when we go back to this biblical passage, we learn that the people that Esarhaddon placed there were a mixed group. We know that he placed foreigners. But not only foreigners. We read, there's a passage that I, I intentionally omitted, that um, we read that these people didn't worship in Yahweh, so Yahweh sends lions, they get eaten alive, and then he decides to bring his priests, um, the, Samaria, Samaria, the people of Samaria back, or Israel back. And he's, the, this priest is teaching these foreigners that were repopulated, who repopulated Samaria how to worship Yahweh. And further, if you keep reading, you talk, they talk about almost the syncretism that happens. That it seems like, yes, they sort of worship Yahweh, but they also worship their own God. So what, we're, what we know right now is it seems like the enemies of Judah and Benjamin is referring to these people that were, that were living in the time when, when the Judeans returned from Persia. And with, what they had to do was, when they returned to the land of Israel, they weren't dealing with an empty land. It was a land that they were trying to um, reconquer. And it was a land where these people that lived in Samaria was living, and that they thought that they were worshiping Yahweh. But were they really worshiping Yahweh? What most likely happened was there was syncretism. And we also know from the history of the northern kingdom of Israel that the people of the northern kingdom of Israel worshipped Yahweh. They actually did. We know that the golden calf represented Yahweh in some ways. But it seems like there's some kind of syncretism that God didn't want people of Israel worshipping golden calves, right? And Bethel, right here that we read, Bethel was one of the sanctuaries of the northern kingdom of Israel where the golden calf was located. So it's a symbolism of syncretism and wayward worship at this moment. Can I ask a two-second question? Yes. Well, this is probably a rabbit trail, so but just out of curiosity. Okay, cool. If, is this possibly some of the roots between, like, the John 4 narrative? Yes, it is. Do not? Yes, what, okay. 100%. Um, so let me go, go into here, then. You're on the right trail. That's very important. So let me show you. Where's Samaria? Give or take up here, right? This is Jerusalem. It's kind of in the north. And there's something called Mount Gerizim right here. This is, this is how Mount, like, Mount Gerizim actually looks. There, it's a mountain. There's a valley. There's a, now another mountain called mountain, Mount Ebal here. Um, and if you go to Mount Gerizim, 
Archaeologists have actually excavated Mount Gerizim and found a humongous sanctuary right there. And the question is, when does this sanctuary date? It's actually a site that has been reconstructed over and over and over, which absolutely makes sense. A holy site continues to be holy for the continuing generation that live. Therefore, even Jerusalem, it has been a holy site for hundreds of years. And if you go to Jerusalem now, you know that it's a holy religious site, not only for Christians, but for Jews, as well as in people who, who, who are Islamic. In the same way, Mount Gerizim, you can tell, is a holy site that covered the Byzantine period, about the 6th century. Before that, there is this huge Hellenistic, this, this purple, is Hellenistic period, meaning the Greek period, about 2-300 BCE. And then, under all of this, this light blue, what you see right there, belongs to the Persian period, which we are talking about right now. So we know that this site, Mount Gerizim, actually has been a place of worship ever since the Persian period. And we know that it continually was interpreted as a um, holy site for many generations that came. And um, this, is, um, this place is right under here. Um, this thing is on top of that, so you can't really excavate it. But they believe there had to be a temple and altar and this general vicinity is what, uh, what the excavators think. And this idea of Mount Gerizim being like this northern Sumerian, uh, Samaria-related sanctuary is an ancient, not an ancient one, but the Bible actually talks about this too. There's a very strong theology between this. In Deuteronomy, we read, Moses also charged the people on that day, saying, When you cross into the Jordan... These shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. One thing you're going to notice, it says Levi, Judah, and Benjamin. Those are the people that returned from Persia. Okay? For the curse, these shall stand on Mount Ebal. Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zerubim, Dan, and Naphtali. This is basically what becomes the northern, northerners for the most part. What's the curse? Um, so, it's basically that they're eventually going to fall, that there's this early destruction is kind of, kind, of, kind of the idea that's really associated with this. And in the book of Joshua chapter 8, we read the same thing. Then Joshua built on Mount Ebal and bulged to Yahweh and God of Israel. Half of the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim, you know who now, because you read in Deuteronomy, and how half of Mount Ebal as Moses, the servant of Yahweh, had formerly commanded. So let's go back to the question. I said, who is the enemy of Judah and Benjamin? Do you know what's significant of Judah and Benjamin? They were brothers at one They time. were brothers, yes. yes. The 12 tribes all used to right. be brothers. Yes. Um, <coughs> Those are the two tribes that consisted of the southern kingdom of Judah. And all the other tribes, and we talked about the lost tribes, remember? Yeah. All the other tribes, including what we just read in Deuteronomy, lived in northern kingdom of Israel. So, the expression, the enemies of Judah and Benjamin, is implicitly pointing to the northern kingdom. It's saying all the tribes other than Judah and Benjamin, which is the northern tribe of Israel, are the enemies of the returnees, of the, the Judeans who return to the land. And right now, we also talked about this background, 
that this text is intentionally pointing to the, Samaria, the people who lived in Samaria. So it seems like in every instance, and archaeology kind of corroborates this too, it seems like what the text is doing is separating the, pe- the correct people of God, the Judahites and Benjamins, Benjamites that went out to exile and returned. And the enemies of these, the people of God that returned were the people that were in the land, in the north, that seems to have some sort of twisted Yahwism. It's kind of the idea that, that is happening in this text. So, let's continue to read and see what the book has installed for us. And one thing that I want you to know is what we're seeing a pattern here, right? People in a foreign land is, is led by a leader into the promised land. Once they enter the promised land, they face opposition. What does this story sound like to you? Moses. Exactly. This story of Ezra seems to intentionally mimic the pattern of the Israelites entering into the promised land for, you know, through Moses in a very intentional way. It seems like just as Moses, you know, God, God moved the heart of Pharaoh to, um, and Moses to let, leave the Israelites out the land. So we see that with Persia, God moves Cyrus, king of Persia, to allow the Judeans to get out from a foreign land back to the promised land. But once you go into the promised land, what do people face? Opposition. Just like the book of Joshua that we talked about a couple weeks ago. So this is a beautiful story where everything we know is coming and merging together. So, let's keep reading this exciting story. So, can someone read these verses for me, please? At the beginning of reign of Exodus Ex- Xerxes. Yeah. Who was that? Xerxes. Xerxes. They lies an accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Xerxes? Artaxerxes. Who's that? Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes. Yeah. King Persian. The Bishlam and the, the Mithrad, Mithrad, yeah. Yeah, uh, Tabia and the rest of his associates wrote a letter to Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes. <laughs> to King Artaxerxes, from your servant in Trans-Euphrates, the king should know that the people who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are restoring the walls and repairing the foundation. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid, and eventually the royal revenues will suffer. (laughs) (laughs) Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid, and eventually the royal revenues will suffer. A search may be made in the archives of your predecessors. In these records, you will find that this city is a rebellious city, troublesome to kings and provinces, a place with a long history of sedition. That is why this city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is built and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in trans-Euphrates. The king sent this reply. I issued an order, and a search was made. And it was found that this city has a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. 
Now issue an order to these men to stop work, so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Can someone read these? As soon as the copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was returned to Rahum and Shimsham, the secretary and their associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled and compelled them by force to stop. So we read the first three chapters, which was the story about the restoration that was made. And I talked about, we, we just dealt with the first opposition. In these verses, we read about the second and third oppositions that the Judeans had to face. It seems like the second opposition was during the reign of Xerxes. And the third opposition was during the reign of Artaxerxes. I know the names sound similar, but they're two different pieces. Yeah. Um, and once we start reading and paying attention to the text, we find out the biblical author made a beautiful structure with this. Biblical authors like to repeat things in sequence. And this is sometimes called a chiastic structure. It's like an X where um, it kind of gives this sequence. Um, I'll show it to you. A, people are restoring the wicked city through building walls and foundation. This is kind of the letter, right? The content of the letter. Then he says in B, royal revenue will suffer. And C, it says, search the archive. This is a rebellious city. Um, and then we see in the reply from Artaxerxes, it follows, it answers in the letter in reverse. We're going to see in C prime, I searched the archive, and indeed it is a rebellious city, is what he says. And B promises, Jerusalem has had powerful kings, and yes, taxes, tribute, and all these duty were paid to them. Um, and A promises, I issued an order to stop and stop work. So you can see that in every way that there is a counterpoint to the letter that was sent with the reply that was sent. So the question is, why is that important, right? Um, so let me talk about something. Earlier we talked about Cyrus. He's the first guy to let the Judeans go back. And then during the first opposition, it says they bugged the Judeans from this, starting with the time of Cyrus all the way to Darius. And now we're in Xerxes and Artaxerxes, which makes sense. They're going in chronological sequence, right? Right now. Um, and the question is, why, why would Artaxerxes suddenly issue an order to stop? When the first king, the great king, Cyrus, was so kind to let the Judeans stop, uh, start their work, it seems contradictory almost. Why would a couple generations, why would you know, this grand, great-grandchild or something stop the work that your great-granddaddy allowed? But we're going to find out historically that Artaxerxes was living in a very turbulent time. A time that his empire was threatened by multiple rebellions from every corner, actually, from the kingdom. You can see, east to west. We're going to find out that Bactria right here, led by the king's brother in his past days, rebelled. We also, these are not in the Bible, but we know these from extra-biblical sources. Libya right here rebels and takes over Egypt at this point. They were trying to make their own, own kingdom. We also know that Libya forms... Uh, a far, forms a strong um, tie with Athens. And they say, yo, 
They'll take over here. Let's work together and get our land back. Let's get liberty. If some people have seen the movie 300 or something, you know, it's a story about Xerxes, the Persian king, right. fighting against the famous um, uh, fighters from uh, the Spartans. So give or take, you know, this area right up here. So, remember that our, um, Artaxerxes is just one generation following Xerxes. So following the famous story of his father's loss to the Greeks, or the powerful rebellion the Greeks led, do you think if he hears any news from right here, also Syria rebellion, from, so that we already have a triangle here. If another little country right here, region right there, try to rebel against the kingdom of Persia, would Artaxerxes have it? No. Because we already have in every way this entire era rebelling against the powerful Persian Empire. If he hear, hears a rumor about a rebellion led by the Israelites, I think that the what was written in this letter is true. If Israel rebels, you're going to have nothing in the trans Euphrates, which is this side of the world. It says, look at that, Syria rebelled, Athens rebelled, Libya rebelled, this is the only tiny land that you have. And actually, this land was very, very important strategically. Their side in Tyre, which is historically and traditionally not part of Israel, but these are port cities. Do you know how Darius or Xerxes or any of the Persian kings fought against the Greeks? One of their main power came from Sidon and Tyre and their powerful marines that they had. They had boats, and they could come from here into Greece and attack it. There is no way that Persia would ever lose control of this important area which Jerusalem and Judeans were part of. So historically, we find that this story is kind of making sense why Artaxerxes would stop a rebellion. <clears throat> but yes, the Bible is not simply a history book. It is a theological book. And it's trying to teach us theological lessons. And let's try to see what it's teaching us theologically at this moment. Um, let's read Ezra 4.24. Thus the work of the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, the descendant of Edo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shetil, and Joshua, the son of Josadach, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. This is a copy of a letter that Tathanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shaphan, Bozena, and their associates, the officials of Trans-Euphrates, <laughs> sent to King Darius. It's hard names. <laughs> the king should know that we went out to the district of Judah, to the temple of the great God. The people are building it with large stones and placing the temples in the walls. The work is being carried on with diligence and is making rapid progress under their direction. We questioned the elders and asked them, who authorized you to rebuild this temple and to finish it? This is the answer they gave us. We 
are the servants of God of heaven and earth. And we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, one that a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our ancestors angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the Chaldean, king of Babylon, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God. He even removed from the temple of Babylon the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to the temple in Babylon. And King Cyrus gave them to a man named Sheshbazar, whom he had appointed governor. Someone read these verses. So this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God, Darius then issued an order, and they searched the archives stored in the treasury, treasury at Babylon. A scroll was found in the citadel at Tatana in the province of Media. Now then, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar, Mosenai, and you other officials of that province, stay away from there. Uh, this is a, uh, the words of the name, sorry. Do not interfere with the word on this temple of God. Let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild this house of God on its site. So, we quickly went through six chapters right now. But we started with restoration of Cyrus, the three waves of opposition. And some of you are going to say, hey, Kaz, you said that there were only three opposition. It seems like this is another opposition. There's a reason why I say there are only three. Because... The biblical text of Ezra is structured in such an odd way that it actually goes to the future and back to the past. It's kind of like back to the future movies that doesn't make any sense in your head. Yeah. So, we actually see the first opposition happens during the time of Cyrus and Darius. And then it goes to the future, Xerxes, Artaxerxes, and back to the time of Darius during 5 and 6. So, what we, have, what we saw today is we started with Cyrus, went to Darius, we just had Xerxes and Artaxerxes, and you would naturally think that we, there's a Darius 2nd or Darius 3rd, right? You're like, why wouldn't it go chronologically Darius 2 or 3? We know that that cannot be the case, because historically, we know that the reconstruction of the temple finishes before them. So it has to be Darius 1. So... And we know that um, this is kind of going back. And there are actual textual clues as to how this happens. We know that if you, uh, this section that we just read, chapters, uh, these chapters, we read about Haggai and Zechariah, these prophets, encourage rebuilding of the temple. And this is another chiastic structure, A, B, C, C, prime, B, prime, C, C. B is Tatana uh, inquire about the authorization. Who let you do this? Then we see your letter that we just read. Tatanai's letter to Darius. And then we find Darius's letter to Tatanai, the reply that we also read. We didn't read these verses, but basically Darius says, Tatanai, don't mess with them. Tatanai complies with the authorization. He doesn't bother the Judeans. And then this chapter ends, chapter 6 ends, with Haggai and Zechariah encouraged the completion of the temple. 
is what's happening. And also, we're going to look at this kind of in, um, in detail of how this um, letter is structured, because I think it really gives us an idea of what's important for this um, text. There are two questions that Tat and I asked the Judeans. First one, who authorized you to build or rebuild this temple and to finish it? And the second question is, what are your names, essentially? The Judeans answer. And this is written in the letter that Tat and I wrote to um, Darius. He answered, they answered, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. They don't give their personal names, but they identify who they are. And how they identify themselves is by associating with Yahweh. And then there's this kind of a bracketed expression. We are rebuilding the temple from old because our ancestor angered the God of heaven. He gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar who destroyed this temple and deported the people. It's kind of like when I ask people a question and they don't answer my question, and I'm like, why do you do that? Well, this is very intentional. This is one of those moments. You, you're like, well, why are they adding this when there was, that wasn't a question that they were, they were asked? And then finally they, they answer by saying, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God. So we see that they sort of answer these questions, but there's this weird addition that's happening in the text. The question is, why? Why would the Judeans add this detail? What I think is this detail that's added right there is intentional. And it's this enigmatic feature, this weird feature, also helps us answer why there's this weird structure of Cyrus, Darius, Xerxes, and Artaxerxes, and back to Darius. Because we'll find out that the last time that Nebuchadnezzar was mentioned before this, was in the letter of Artaxerxes that we just read. And I know we just read it quickly, so we might not remember the detail about it. But in that letter is a letter of opposition to Artaxerxes saying, hey, Artaxerxes, these people are building the city of Jerusalem. You're toast if they, if they made it. These guys are rebellious. They're terrible rebellious people. Because they're so rebellious, that's why their city got destroyed, is how they answered. Uh, how they describe the event. You can see that in this letter, there's almost a theological correction to the previous passage. What they're saying is, we are rebuilding the temple from old, and it's not because they're rebellious. It's not because they're the people were rebellious that they got destroyed. Israel was destroyed. The reason is because our ancestors angered the God of heaven. So it's going back to a theological reason. The reason, the very reason why they lost the land of Israel is because they angered Yahweh, that they rebelled against Yahweh. Um, and that is why Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city and the people. It's not because um, they are rebellious or seditious in any way, according to this text. So it seems like there's a theological correction that is happening to the, pre to the previous chapters that we just read. Moreover, I think this kind of gives us a better idea of why the Judeans said no to the Sumerians trying to help. It's because they know better. How do you anger Yahweh? Um, that was a question I was going to ask anyway. But I guess uh, what they were not following the... Uh, with rules and doing the uh, proper uh, 
So yes. So probably yes. It's hard to really determine because it's not explicit, right? But what the book of Second Kings, chapter seventeen, kind of indicates is that there is this weird mixing of religion. That the people worship Yahweh and try to worship Yahweh, but still would incorporate traditions and their deities. Or they will say, I'll worship Yahweh and my God. It can't hurt that much. Remember, many many of these countries are polytheistic, including right now. Cyrus, we know that he worshipped his own God, the Persian God, and Marduk. And according to the Old Testament, Yahweh too. Polytheism was a very normal thing. How would the Judeans get in trouble and anger God? It's by not worshiping Yahweh correctly in the right way to risk the contamination of faith. Well, I mean, yeah. God always said you will have no other God. Yes, me. yes. So, that's what this is getting at. He's the, in this letter, it's reminding the Judeans who read this, the audience, remember how you angered Yahweh. Remember what makes Yahweh upset. What is the issue here? The issue is not financial. Cyrus gave him money. The issue is not, you know, um, like, uh, you know, simple disobedience to Yahweh. Of course it is. But the, the, the issue is, um, one of the key themes in Ezra is of people, foreign land, returned to home when there was, the home was inhabited by someone else. What are you going to do? Are you going to intermarry with them? Are you going to mix faith with them? Are you going to buy into their culture? Or are you going to be a people wholly separated and dedicated to Yahweh and, and hold your ground? Those are issues that they're facing at that, that historical moment. And this little thing, like I said, this is a beautiful chiasm that... Like the Hebrew authors like to repeat, but when they digress, that's when you're saying, aha, he's, the, the local author is pointing something very important to me to notice. And this little digression answers multiple questions and help us understand what is the theological message that are communicated to those people at that moment. Sorry. Ah, I was going to go to LDT, which is really fun, but we're going to skip it because it's not necessary. Um, but to my conclusion, for the people of Judea, or the Judeans, or Israel, God's people, worship in the temple is intricately connected to who they are, to their very being and their identity. And through this story, we learn that God is a God that only graciously gives second chances, right? This is a re-Exodus. There's a, this is a re-Joshua. This is a re-Second Kings. We know that the Israelites had success and failures throughout their history, as we've talked about in our lesson. We talked about Joshua. We've talked about Second Kings. This is their opportunity to get it right. And what, and what was important for them is this issue. Are you, are you going to be a people of God? Or are you going to give up who you are? Or are you going to modify who, who, who you believe or how you walk in faith and remarry? Or are you going to marry with non-believers? Are you going to embrace the culture of, the, of the, these people that do not think or live like you? Yes, maybe they kind of worship our God, 
But is it full-on worship of God, or is it just sort of kind of wishy-washy worship of God? Because God's not going to be hang- happy. Actually, in fact, God will be angered if you can pick the latter. So the book of Ezra, I think, has multiple ways that he can speak to us today, too. What is important for us? How fully are you committed to Yahweh? And Yahweh is gracious. If we make mistakes, which we do, if you have made mistakes, which I have, God will graciously allow us to return, to have a re-Exodus, a re-Joshua, a re-Second Kings moment that you can correct and choose to work with and work and live for Yahweh in the right way. Well, thank you. Thank you. You did a wonderful job. Come back to see us anytime. Hello, my name is Lorenz, and I am a choir singer here at One Fellowship Church in Waco, Texas. Thank you for listening. You can learn more about our congregation online at onefellowshipumc.org. You can also like us on Facebook in order to stay up to date with the latest events and activities taking place in our community. Please feel free to share this message and others on social media so that more people can hear about what God is doing here at One Fellowship Church. Thank you and God bless.